Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue from our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we wrap up our current mini-series we've been calling Christian in a Good Way. This week, Pastor Tim will ask us to make a very critical choice. Now, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. We are going to pick up. Uh, We are now in week... Oh, I have no idea. We started at, in December a series on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew. And we are now um, just on the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this morning, my hope is to uh, wrap up the Sermon on the Mount with us all. My, so what I would love to do is look at the end and how Jesus kind of lands his Sermon on the Mount And then uh, if we have the time and the space to do it, we'll back up even one step further and ask the question, is what else is going on in this in this Sermon on the Mount? We've we've been exploring the sermon for two months or so, but for that first audience, this is a sermon that he's giving to a group of people. This is one sermon, not several sermons. So is what is that sermon about? Um, I want to explore that with you. Um, But before we do that, let's just read how Jesus wraps up his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And that's what we'll wrap up today. Uh, Jesus, this is how Jesus lands his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus offers three, you could maybe argue four, three or four contrasting pictures um, that almost function like, my, we're going to try the whiteboard again. Somebody told me they cannot see it online, but I can't see you online. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was mean. That was mean. <laughs> I wrote the word warning. Ah, 
that Jesus offers three contrasting images um, that almost function like warnings. Uh, the, Jesus talks about how there are wide roads and narrow roads, wide gate, or small gates, big gates, picture. Uh, he talks about how there is good fruit, bad fruit. Good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Uh, and then his last image he gives us is, uh, he talks about the two foundations. You can build your house on rock or you can build your house on the sand. Pretty straightforward images. Um, pretty, if you grew up in or around church, pretty common images. Uh, some of the more famous images uh, of Jesus. And yet, as a church, one of the things that hopefully a muscle that we've been flexing a bit is how you have to dare ask the questions. Uh, assume the position of the, have I ever, have, assume I've never heard this passage before. How would I have heard this passage? Maybe when you were a kid, maybe some of you, you heard this as a kid and you, you asked the, the obvious question as a kid and you got an answer and the answer was sufficient and so you stopped asking the question but you've assumed, you just assumed the answer. Dare ask the question again, even if you assume the answer. And honestly, in this, in this case, your assumed answer is probably pretty, pretty spot on and yet by asking the question, um, you are able to see things that otherwise you just sometimes cannot see. And so some questions we've learned to ask are, is there anything out of the ordinary in the passage? Is there anything in this passage that's strange? Is there anything in this passage that the first audience, um, they, they would have understood that because we live in a different world, we just don't see? Is, how would the first per- the first time you heard this passage, or if this is the first time, you're actually at an advantage. Um, what questions are, would come to your mind if this is the very first time you heard this? Here's some for instances. Uh, Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Why? Why? Now, maybe we have your assumed answer, the assumed answer, but why does Jesus say this? Why is Jesus anti-wide road? <laughs> like, what is it about the wide road that Jesus is anti-wide road? Uh, then he goes on and he says, same breath, uh, enter through the narrow gate. Uh, and, and we hear that and we say, okay, I'll do that. I'll enter through the narrow gate. But why does Jesus say that? Now again, all sorts of people are gonna rush forward and give an answer to it. And honestly, they, they're probably right. But if you just rush to the answer, um, and every teacher here, you know this. If you just rush to the answer, if, you, if a student asks you for the answer and you give them the answer without asking them to do the work, they have the right answer, but they probably won't remember it because there's something about the process of discovery, the aha moment, uh, that helps us to remember a thing. Uh, so, so why does Jesus say enter through the narrow gate? What, what is, what's going on there? Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, figs don't grow on thorn bushes and grapes don't grow from thistles. Uh, now we hear that and we say, yeah, of course. And it's obvious, right? Jesus, Jesus says that something that's so obvious it's almost offensive especially to the first audience. Um, so Jesus is teaching in a region uh, up here. This is the Sea of Galilee, this little water body right here. Uh, the area around the Sea of Galilee is known as the Galilee. Uh, th- this area, the Galilee, has a lot of farmland. The number one trade, so Jesus, a lot of his uh, disciples are fishermen, but the number one trade in the Galilee region is farming. Figs, olives, and, uh, and grapes. Number, the three biggest industries in the Galilee. Um, you can see the farmlands, right? Like it's... So Jesus goes to a group of farmers and he gives a farming lesson that is so obvious. It'd be like if you were in construction and I went up to you and I said, you do know that hammers don't taste like purple, right? 
You would want to punch me. Like, you're a stick-to-preaching guy. Like, don't tell us how to build. Jesus says something so obvious. Why does he say something that's so blatantly obvious? That's a question worth asking. Uh, another one, uh, don't build your house on sand. Build it on the rock. Now, this is one that for those of us who grew up in or around the church, we've, we've heard the song. Remember the song? Let me, replay, let me refresh your memory. It's, uh, if you didn't grow up in church, this is what you missed. enough. It's good. Uh, the rains came down and the floods came out. Three. Uh, uh, so yesterday I was putting the slides together and my daughter started, my three-year-old started singing the song. And I was like, oh, we're still teaching the song. I love this song. Uh, now I hear this and you, you know the song and you sang it as a kid. And yet you have to ask the question. So you see images like this. Okay. The wise man built his house. I don't look at this and say, well, that guy, that guy's smart. <laughs> No offense to the, to the YouTube video, but I don't say, well, you know, I, I look at a guy like this, or how about the next one? Uh, and uh, like, I look at this and say, you're really smart. No, I mean, every once in a while, the introverted side of me is like, that looks like a great idea. Um, you got to swim to get to me. Um, but but the, didn't quite think that through there, did you, bud? Uh, why does Jesus say it's better to build your house on a rock than on sand? Any, any, I'm, well, I can't say this definitively because I'm, I'm not in construction, but I would assume, uh, people who build, I would assume it's easier to build on sand where you can like, pour a foundation, make sure it's smooth, versus building a, a foundation on rock where you've got to like, use dynamite to create some level ground. Why does Jesus use this picture when uh, even in his world they were using, found, why this image? What, what does Jesus know or see or understand that we're missing? And then um, you got to ask the questions, ask the questions. Uh, and then maybe the most haunting of all is this line. Jesus says, now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's one that can get under your skin, can't it? Um, now, I would assume, I would assume that what Jesus would say is, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So it's not just about a magical phrase or even doing the right stuff necessarily. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not do all this stuff? I would assume the follow-up would be, away from me, you never knew me. But that's not what he says. He says, away from me, I never knew you. That one, if, if you sit on it for too long, if you, it can get under your skin. Like, how do we know if God knows us? How, are we, how can we be sure that God knows us? Because if he doesn't, he says, get away from me. I don't want, like, how do you know? Now, you gotta ask the questions. Ask the questions. Taken at first glance, um, you take something like this at first glance, it seems to be that what Jesus does at the ending of his sermon on the mount is he offers Three warnings. Now, it's pretty clear to see how they're connected. Each of the warnings seems to have a choice involving it. But I wonder if there's more going on than just three warnings at the end of a Sermon on the Mount. Are the pictures connected in any way? Um, are these pictures actually part of something bigger? 
We've spent two months on the Sermon on the Mount, but if you were to to be in that first audience, part of that original crew, hearing one sermon, is Jesus just giving random details? Love your enemy. Uh, uh, Do not judge others. Um, Forgive. Here's a Lord's Prayer. Is Jesus just giving random details that we, which is how we often treat them, right? Like, that's how we treated it here. Just, we'll talk about the Lord's Prayer. Now we're going to talk about divorce. Now we'll talk about... Is Jesus just giving random details, or is this one sermon? And if it's one sermon, could you take the one sermon, and if you were to try to explain to somebody, here's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is it possible to distill the one sermon into three or four sentences? Is it possible to take the one sermon about divorce and judgment and uh, prayer and fasting? And is it possible to distill all of it down to one line? That's the task we have for us today. I want to suggest that Jesus has a message and there's a through line throughout his Sermon on the Mount that I think they would have caught. Uh, And I think certainly us uh, who are looking at the whole thing and can study it can catch What's the story? When you put the details together, a story begins to emerge. And if you dare ask the questions, the questions kind of function like windows. And if you climb through the windows, you start to see some things. So what's this sermon about? Now, before we go there, let me uh, walk through the last three pictures Jesus gives, um, because I think they may help. Uh, The last three pictures. First, Jesus talks about gates and roads. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, um, one of the questions we're learning to ask is, where does Jesus say what he says? Is there anything they would have seen that because they're sitting there uh, listening to Jesus preach, they would have seen any object lessons that they would have caught? So, uh, for instance, um, last week we read through the passage about uh, consider the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Remember, remember this passage? Um, talk about anxiety and worry. Uh, is Jesus just sitting in a church environment like this, where he's got a PowerPoint and a whiteboard? Or is he actually, this is where Jesus would have taught the sermon. Um, this is the, a chapel built in honor of the location. But this is the field where the crowds would have gathered. To this day, you've got wildflowers. I am almost certain that as, as Jesus is teaching about anxiety, a bird flies. And Jesus says, look at the bird. Is the bird worried about tomorrow? No. The bird knows that tomorrow's got its own worries. It's going to have to worry about food tomorrow. Why worry about tomorrow's worries today? I got enough to worry about today. And then he points at some wildflowers. Look at the wildflowers. Look at them. They're more beautiful than even Solomon. And are they worried about getting dressed every morning? So why are you? Do you understand how it's like an object lesson? Jesus is often pointing at something. Raising the question when Jesus talks about wide and narrow roads, is there a road that Jesus is pointing to or at? Turns out that there was a major road that was not far from here. Uh, It actually, this major road ran right through Jesus' hometown city of Capernaum. If you've been with us for the last couple months, you've heard us talk about this. Uh, The road is known as the Via Maris Um, or the intercoastal highway, some will refer to it as. I ran all the way from Egypt down to here to Rome and Greece and Babylon, Persia, Assyria, over here. This road connected the world. Major road. 
Uh, my mental model of Capernaum was always, it was like Podunkville. It was like country land. Um, but there was a major highway, diversity running right down the road, uh, right from Jesus' house. People speaking all kinds of languages for trade, uh, running right through the middle of his town. A big tax outpost so they could tax the travelers right in Jesus' hometown. The Via Maris, um, now it was big at the time of Jesus, um, uh, it was big before Jesus. It was there before Jesus. But at the time of Jesus, the Romans came in and they expanded the roads. The Romans came in. Let me give you some stats. They created 29 great highways, this being one of them. They were interconnected by 372 road links. In all, there are about 250,000 miles of paved road system uh, with 55,000 of those miles being considered super highways. Paved superhighways, the Via Maris being one of them. Wide roads, wide roads. Now, the purpose for them was they got to march their military up and down. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, you see how strategically uh, in a war environment to be able to march your military in quickly and out quickly, how that's a strategic thing. Rome wanted the same kind of strategic stronghold over a country. So they built these roads so that in the event that Israel would try to rebel, they could march their military in. They could essentially shut them down. So they built these massive roads. The ironic twist is these exact roads will be the roads that Paul and Timothy and John and the disciples will use to bring the gospel I find awesome. But they built these roads. Uh, this is uh, a city in the Decapolis, one of the Roman cities. Look how big the road is. Massive roads, columnated roads. Now, um, there's a saying. You've heard the saying. All roads lead to... Yeah, they said that then too. All roads lead to Rome. All these roads eventually get you to Rome. You stay on the wide road long enough, you will eventually end up at Rome. What's the picture? Wide is the road, but you stay on the road. Lots of people are on it. From all over the world, they're on these roads. But eventually you stay on that road long enough, you're going to end up at the heart of the empire. Everything that's antichrist, everything that's against the way of God. Then he goes on, he says, but narrow is the road. Is there any road that they would have been thinking of? Narrow road. Turns out there was a famous road, maybe the most famous Jewish road uh, still to this day, a famous road that every Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish believer knew about. It was known as the Jericho Road. Um, right here, there we go, Jericho Road. Uh, the Jericho Road is this winding road from the city of Jericho where the priests live. Sometimes it's referred to as the priest road. Uh, that winds all the way up through the mountains, the Mount of Olives, comes down into the city of Jerusalem. The Jericho Road, it's the setting for uh, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus puts the Jer the, that story on the Jericho Road. Uh, let me show you an image of the Jericho Road. Yeah, another image, a picture. See it? This is the only road that gets you from Jericho to, uh, to Jerusalem. There's a reason why Jesus will put the story of the Good Samaritan here. It's a dangerous road. If you're trying to pickpocket, if you're trying to mug somebody, this is where you go. You hide around a corner. They, what are they going to do? Jump off the cliff? You got them. And Jesus puts the story there. The, the ironic twist in that story is when he says, oh, and he crossed over to the other side of the street. Like it's, <laughs> like you, you, narrow is the road that leads to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where God lives. Uh, Jesus refers to it in the same sermon, the city of Jerusalem, as the city of the great king. It's got the temple. God's house is there. Do you see the picture? You stay on this road. It's hard. 
It's windy. It's hard to find. But on this road, you stay on it long enough. Eventually, you end at God's house. You stay on the big road, you eventually end up at Rome. He then talks about gates. Uh, Just in case you're wondering, is this just, you just making this up? Um, Here's a gate from Rome. Notice the massive gates. Now, the purpose of a gate in an ancient world was defensive. You built a gate, you built a wall, and the wall was often a double wall. Uh, In between the walls, you would put your houses. In the event of war, you would fill those rooms in, so now you've got a, a super wall. The weakest part of a city was the gate, because that's where, like, how do you defend the gate? Always the question. Um, Rome, for them, the the purpose wasn't defense. No one's going to try to fight Rome. They're not going to try to take down our cities. For them, the gate was about beauty. It was about showing off how good they were. Compare this gate to a gate in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was constantly under attack. The gates are narrow and tight. Do you see the picture? It's like a metaphor. Jesus is giving us a, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. Now, extrapolate that to Jesus himself because he'll do that too. Jesus will wrap himself in temple language, destroy this temple, and it'll be brought back in three days. So, so you, yes, the picture of Jesus is the narrow path and the narrow road. Yes, but understand the picture. Okay, that's the first one. Second picture, verse 15. Watch out. For false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree cannot, or, or, I'm sorry, a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, You'll recognize them. Now, um, we asked earlier, uh, isn't this an obvious point to a bunch of farmers who do, do this for a living? These two trees that Jesus mentions are two of the major, the, the, the major jobs, the major trades of Jesus. Why is Jesus making such an obvious point? I think the obviousness of Jesus' point is the point. I think he's trying to make it... Um, understand, in the, in the Galilee region of Israel, we are in the Bible belt of Israel. This is where Orthodox Jewish believers, the Pharisees, lived. Uh, the Pharisees uh, took the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they observed that there are 613 laws. Not only did they say we have to follow all of the laws, they were so worried that they might break one of the laws that they added an additional uh, set of laws referred to as the Oral Torah. So the Torah says no work on the Sabbath, but how do we know what's work? It doesn't tell us. Can I can I go to the can I walk to the store? Is that work? How far can I walk? The oral oral Torah told you the answers. They took the Bible seriously. In fact, right after the right after Jesus, a rabbi named Rabbi Simle observed that there are 613 laws. This is interesting to me. Um, There of those 613 laws, 248 of them are positive laws, positive commands, and 365 of them are negative commands. Positive commands, do this, do this, do this, do this. The negative commands, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. So he said, this rabbi, and it became tradition, he said the 365 negative commands is every day God wants us to wake up and be reminded of something we can't do. Why? Because we are to be holy. We are to look different. So every day we wake up and we say, the reason we don't do this is because God has set us apart. 
And then he said, okay, well, that leaves 248. What do we do with that number? Well, um, this is where he got. He said, well, two, how many bones are in the body? 206, 209. Take that and add it with every major organ. And he said, okay, that's 248. So 248 is every uh, major organ or bone in your body, to which he interpreted as, so if the negative commands are every day you wake up and say, I'm going to be holy, the positive commands are you say, God, use me to be a priest. My body, me. This is the world of Jesus. They took their Bible. Now, it feels like a stretch for me. I must be honest with you. It feels like a stretch. But they took their Bible seriously, seriously. And it's to this world that Jesus offers a chicken and the egg story. What comes first, the tree or the fruit? Now, Jesus is not talking to a bunch of hipsters who are sipping lattes and debating philosophy. You ask a chicken and an egg, and they're going to be like, oh, I don't know. But if you're asking a farmer, what comes first, the fruit or the tree? What does every farmer know to answer? The tree. What comes first, the strawberry plant or the strawberry? The plant. Every farmer knows the answer to the question. And what Jesus says is, you've got these people who are so worried about this fruit that they're creating, but they've forgotten about the source. They've lost the source. There are people who follow all of the rules, Call that the fruit, maybe. And yet, you've experienced that fruit not as good news. And Jesus says, let me tell you why. Because something in you knows. You can do all of the right religious things. You can, follow, you can memorize all the Bible verses. You can, you can even sign up for all of the charity events. And you can still be mean. And you hear that and you say, yeah, I've experienced that. Um, I would dare wager that some of the meanest interact, the most cruel interactions you've had were with people who use Lord, Lord language. You don't got to say names, but I would dare bet that the, the people who have hurt you the most, what Jesus seems to be saying is obvious, but it's deep. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that you, if you're just, these Pharisees are just focused on the fruit. Just focus on, look at me, I do all the right stuff. And yet, even that fruit, if it's coming from a tree that's toxic and poison, even the fruit, the good deed, is experienced as not very good. I know you signed up to help, but you're not actually helping. Something about your presence in the room is making the whole room worse. You've experienced this. This is what Jesus. So of course, Jesus follows this up with this line of, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just about uttering a magical phrase. It's not just about doing the things. It's about somehow putting your roots in who is God. Okay, that's the second picture. Third picture Jesus gives us. This is maybe the most profound of all. Jesus talks about building a house. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams, the rain came down and the rain came down and the streams rose and the wind, you're going to have that in your head. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That was the alternative title for the sermon. It fell with a great crash. Now the question, 
Why does Jesus say that building a foundation of sand, on sand is worse than on rock? When every builder would tell you it's easier to build on sand because you can pour a foundation that's level without having to blow stuff up. What's the picture? Again, ask the question, what does his audience see? What do they know? Now, the word Jesus uses for sand is an interesting word. It's the word amos in Hebrew. Uh, amos, or in Greek, amos means fine sand, like beach sand. Now, if I were to get a, a bus and we were to all, or an airplane, I guess, we would all go to Israel and I were to walk with you for a while and I'd say, hey, look for sand. We would go and you would say, maybe, maybe there'll be sand in the desert because our mental images of the desert is often the Sahara. So maybe if we go to the desert, we'll see sand. And then I would, we would take you to the desert and guess what you'll see in the desert? Rocks. Lots of rock. Rock, 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 rock. Rocks, rocks, rocks. So then I said, okay, well, hang on. Maybe, you know those pictures we see of Jesus walking by the beach in the Sea of Galilee, barefoot? Let's go walk barefoot on the Sea of Galilee. Smart idea? No, your feet will be cut up and bleeding real fast. It's, it's, one of the, it's a sad moment in Israel because you realize, oh, the, the beach sand of the Sea of Galilee is just rocks. It's rocks, rocks, rocks. Everywhere in Israel, there's rocks. Where's the beach sand? Jesus says, it's like somebody who builds their house on beach sand. Where's the beach sand? There's only two places in Israel that have beach sand. The first, or fine sand, the first is on the coast of the Mediterranean. Is that what Jesus is referring to here? Probably not, because that's essentially that's Herod's land. Good Jews don't really go there. Jesus probably visit, visited there once or twice, but probably not the picture he's giving to his audience. What's the other spot where you find sand? The answer is in the bottom of a wadi, W-A-D-I. The bottom of a wadi. A wadi is a place in the desert where you don't get a lot of rain, um, where the rain periodically will come rushing down the hills. Essentially, it'll rain a couple months out of the year. The limestone cannot absorb the rain. And when it builds up too much, it busts forth and you have a flash flood. And within 10 seconds, you can have a perfectly dry area that's been dry for even a decade leveled. Let me show you a video. Can y'all see this? Here's my whiteboard. Okay. This video is like a minute and a half long, and you can see just how fast. Now, in this water is gone, it'll leave behind this fine sediment of limestone. It looks like beach sand. Anybody speak Hebrew? I think he just swore, but. <laughs> just look at that. Now, eventually, all of this water will make its way to the Jordan River. It's why the Jordan River, if I were to take you to the mighty Jordan River, as, referred, as it's referred to in the Bible, the Jordan River, uh, outside of the rainy season, is not intimidating at all. It's like a creek. I mean, it's maybe five feet wide in spots. Uh, you can walk across it. But at flood stage, it can be a mile wide. All of the rainwater coming from the wadis will make its way down. Uh, and then another video, this one's not as good. 
You get the same idea. You can see the beach sand in this one, though. You see the beach sand. Now, imagine you're saying, I'm going to build a house, and I'm going to put my house here. And you know what? Most of the year, it's really, it, it builds fast. You build that house really, really fast. And you, uh, you make sure the ground's perfect. You can pour your foundation. Uh, you've got a good location for a house. Guess what happened about a decade ago? A group of builders decided they were going to do just this, and they were going to sell it to poor people. <laughs> They were going to sell these houses. Uh, there's a massive lawsuit now because the Wadis have destroyed, um, you get about a 10-year reign that wiped out these houses um, that were in these Wadis. And once you hear it, you have a few seconds to get out of the way. Um, the number one cause of death in the desert in Israel is not starvation. It's not uh, heat stroke. It's not dehydration. The number one cause of death in the desert in Israel is drowning. Every year, some tourists during the rainy season will go into the wadis without knowing what they're getting into. And that dog is next. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I would never show you a video. Of a... <laughs> but you see that, so 10 feet up, you've got rock. And then you got beach sand. That's the picture. It's the picture. I think this may be one of Jesus' best metaphors for life. Notice how Jesus says, when the rains came, not if the rains came. Um, to quote the, the story I was telling you earlier, uh, this is uh, from February 2016. Wadi Gaza is liable to flood in the area, which is about 70 to 100 meters wide, but in some of the places, there have been illegal construction cultivation, which has reduced this area to 15 or 20 meters, he told AFP. Israel has learned about flooding the hard way, Kreshmeyer said. We have learned that you cannot live or build on the riverbanks because once every 10 years, it will get washed away. Isn't that interesting? I think, it's, I think this is just a powerful metaphor for life in general. Um, there, you can be living your life where the biggest concern you have is, is it going to be sunny today so we can go to the cottage? Or is it going to be nice today so that we can play outside? And in a phone call, um, in a split moment, it, your life, the, the, the storms can come and your whole life can be upside down. So many of us have experienced this. In fact, I find it interesting that Jesus does not say if the rains come, but when the rains come, when the storms come. Um, uh, some of you can tell story after story of this in your life where life was pretty predictable and in a flash flood moment, everything shifted. You got the phone call. The diagnosis came back. You heard about the accident. And all of a sudden, it's gone. And Jesus says it's in that moment that the foundation matters. You can build your foundation, and during the easy seasons, you build it on the sand, you'll be like, oh, this is great. I can play in the sand. This is, this is great. It's easier. Um, during quiet times, you can build your life however you want, and you'll probably be fine. But when the storms come, will the foundation hold? That's the question Jesus leaves his audience with. Is the foundation of your life strong enough to hold during the storms that are inevitable to come? And Jesus leaves with three warnings and a choice. Will you choose to put your roots down in God? Will you choose, good tree, bad tree, will you choose to walk the narrow, dangerous road? Will you choose to put your foundation on the rock? 
You have to choose. And Jesus leaves it there. And the crowds, they read, were amazed at his teaching. I should probably leave it there also, but I want to show you one more thing. Um, <laughs> I'll show you one more thing. Uh, because if you take the stories of, that we've been looking at over the last two months, uh, this whole section of scripture we call the Sermon on the Mount, and you start to take the pieces, this nonviolence piece, this piece about judgment, this piece about fasting, this piece about Sabbath, you take all these pieces and you put them together, a story begins to emerge. The story begins with the question, who is blessed? And Jesus, we talked about this two months ago, Jesus points at people from all over the world and he says, you're blessed and you're blessed and you're blessed. All the people who were told by the world they weren't blessed, Jesus points at them and says, in what we call the Beatitudes, you're blessed and you're blessed and you're blessed and you're blessed. Now, raising the question, why would some people think they're not blessed? Well, he then talks about He gives five examples of how the Bible, what he refers to as the law and the prophets, their Old Testament, or our Old Testament, their Bible, how the Bible has been twisted to become a hammer to beat people. Why are you poor? You're not blessed by God. God's angry with you. Why are you mourning? You're not blessed by God. God's angry. So the Bible has been misinterpreted by who? The actors. The hypocrites, the religious leaders themselves have been twisting the Bible. Uh, they've been interpreting the Bible in such a way to make you feel less. Why do they do this? Well, Jesus says there are two ways to see the world. You can have a good eye, and see the world as a generous place a place where there's enough to go around. Or you can have a bad eye, ayin ra'ah or ayin tova. A bad eye says, I only have so much pizza. If I give you a slice and you a slice and you a slice and you a slice, I get less pizza. There's less. There's not enough blessing to go around. I have to take and hoard. He comes back to this point about good eye, bad eye. And he drives it again to the hypocrites. Talks about judgment. Look at them judging like the hypocrites. He then, somebody who has a Bible open. Um, so this is hypocrites, Matthew 7 and Matthew 6. He then, uh, if you have a Bible open, look at somebody read. There we go. Uh, Matthew 7, 12. Outdoor voice. This is what's written in the law and the prophets. What we refer to as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. The, the golden rule. The, this, is what, this is the summary, he says, of the law and the prophets. So if this is how you read it wrong, here's, an, here's how you are to read it. He then follows this up with three warnings. Tree, roads, foundations. It's one sermon with one point. Now, 
You stand back from that and you have to ask the question, the next logical question, is there more going on in this particular story, this particular sermon? As we've been walking through the sermon, uh, we've seen how Jesus has taken some of the brilliant concepts from rabbinical Judaism and has applied them to his interpretation of the text. Uh, things like remez or hints, quoting the Old Testament in a way to make a point. Um, or uh, remember the word kesher or stringing pearls? I'm not going to recap all these, but uh, um, uh, uh, the principle of first mention, remember this one? Uh, last week was an example of a principle known as uh, call the omer, call, not Val Kilmer, but sounds like it. He's the other Batman. Uh, call the omer is when you take something that's obvious and you extrapolate out. So which father, if their kid asked them for bread, would give their kid a scorpion? How much more is God? Okay, so a principle, a rabbinical principle, um, there is a rabbinical principle at play here that I missed. Uh, if you look it up, you see that scholars have seen it. Lots of scholars have, ta- have talked about it, but I missed it. It's a principle known as a chiasm. The rabbis referred to it as an at-bosh. You can ask me about that some other time. <laughs> an at-bosh. It's got the, the word itself is a chiasm. The idea behind a chiasm is that a chiasm mimics, so the first thing and the last thing are connected. Blessings and warnings are connected. The second thing and the second to last thing are connected. The third thing and the third to last thing, and on and on, all kind of functioning to an X. The idea behind a chiasm is whatever's in the center is the point, the highlight, the thing the author really wants you to catch. It's brilliant. Um, So uh, Genesis 1 is a chiasm, days one through three, fit into days four, five, and six. Uh, my favorite example, though, of a chiasm is, uh, is the, the whole book of Mark is a chiasm. So Mark begins with, here is uh, the gospel of the Son of God. Uh, it ends with the, the Roman centurion saying, surely this is the Son of God. Guess what's in the very middle? They're walking to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? His disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're a prophet. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the the Messiah, the son of the living God. What's Mark's point of the whole thing? He's the son of God. He says it in a chiasm. Okay, This, scholars have noted, is a chiasm, raising the question, what is in the center of the Sermon on the Mount? The answer, the Lord's Prayer. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is a summary of everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, a summary of all of it. Um, But what's really interesting is the Lord's Prayer is made up of Five sections. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how we add a segment to it, but that's that's what Jesus records it in Matthew. What scholars have noted is the first section, uh, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. And the last section, deliver us from the evil one, are connected. The second section, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's connected to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here on earth as it is in heaven. You forgive us. What's the middle section of the Sermon on the Mount? Give us this day our daily bread. So the rabbi said, this actually was pointed out to me by a rabbi who's not a Christian. He caught this in Jesus' sermon. The rabbis will say, what's the center of this whole thing? Trusting God with enough for today. What's the Sermon on the Mount about? The whole thing. If you had to distill it down to a sentence, it's, it's God, I, I can't do it without you. Give me the bread for today. I can't do it. I can't make it happen. I, there's enough worries tomorrow that I'll deal with those. But give me enough for today, God. Give me enough. Jesus is teaching his followers how to trust God. Now, the P.S. to the Sermon on the Mount is they leave and they say, wow, this guy, he teaches with shmikah, authority. He's amazing. And now Jesus will leave. He'll stop preaching and he'll start living it. He'll go to the enemies. He will go to the people who judge. He will confront. And the question is, Will the crowd still say, he's amazing? Um, We'll pick up there next week. But the question is, will they go beyond just, that was a great sermon, what's for lunch? Will they live it? Will they stay with him? Give us today our daily bread. By the way, for those of you who want to nerd out on this, um, we said uh, Jesus, this is P.S. number two, um, we said Jesus is quoting, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a rephrase of who? Starts with an M, ends with an Moses. Moses? Um, <laughs> Moses has a sermon uh, that he gives, uh, we call it the book of Deuteronomy. Look up Deuteronomy 30. You'll see Deuteronomy 30 is Moses' ending to his sermon. It's almost the same thing. Jesus is borrowing his words from the book. Uh, but this morning we're going to end with communion. This. All right. Uh, communion is Jesus in the moment where he knows his disciples are about to step into an, a space of absolute need. Jesus invites them to a table. Um, for them, it was a celebration of Passover. Um, but Jesus understands that in this moment, uh, what's going to happen next is he's going to be arrested. Uh, he is going to be uh, found guilty, even though he's innocent. And he's going to be crucified. Uh, and it's all going to happen in the next few. The flash flood is about to hit the disciples. And the last thing Jesus does is he gathers his disciples and he reminds them of their daily bread. Because tomorrow is going to be hard. But you have to understand who he is. So um, the way we do communion here is uh, we have four, five stations in the front, four stations in the front. Um, uh, they each have a uh, gluten-free option and the little... Uh, Shot glass is wrong, but I'm going to still say, I'm going to double down. Shot glass option as well. Um, but uh, the, 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 we'll be standing here to serve you if you want. We'll, uh, take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup. Um, and we would love for us, this is our communion with each other as the body of Christ, but also with, um, with our God in a way uh, that is um, really beautiful. And so we want to invite you into that with us this morning. Um, before we do that, would you please join me in a word of prayer? Our Lord, 
Would you remind us of the holiness of this moment? Lord, would you remind us that you are present with us? Um, Even if right now we don't see you uh, or can't feel you, Lord, would you remind us that you are present? Uh, Lord, would you help us to choose again and again and again to anchor ourselves on the rock? Lord, we pray that the flash floods would not come for us, but when they do, Lord, we ask that you would help us withstand Uh, Lord, we pray for those in our world who right now are in the midst of the flood. Um, Lord, we we ask that you would help us find ways to be good news to them. Uh, But in this moment, Lord, we come to you hungry, we come to you needy, we come to you a bit desperate, and we ask, Lord, that you meet us in all of that. Meet us in our humanity, meet us in our frailty. Jesus, we pray this in your name. And everybody said... As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.